I think China is extremely worried that they get blamed for this, right? Because it's wreaking havoc across the world, both you know physically and economically. And so, for them to see this this doubts and disinformation that maybe the U.S. did it, it it's a way for them to one undercut the U.S. position in certain countries, but two create enough doubt and enough sort of noise that that maybe they avoid what I think will be inevitable calls for accountability. I think you're going to start hearing more people say, well, what are the Chinese actually also pushing back so hard because they're trying to hide something? And so it's creating, and I, and I have heard that yeah. from not, not Americans. Um, and so, so I think it's blowing up, it's backfiring on China um, in many countries, I think, not just in the U.S. And it's, again, it's just unfortunate because the world doesn't need this right now. The world needs to figure out how to fight this virus. China? What are they even saying? Hello and welcome to China Talk, now posted on Lawfare. This week's guest is Bill Bishop, the author of the leading English language newsletter on China, Sinicism. What have the past three months taught us most about the CCP in China? Well, Jordan, first of all, thanks for having me and congratulations on uh, becoming published by Lawfare. I think it's a, it's a great, great site, great network. Uh, what are the last three months have taught us about the CCP? That is a, I assume that's the entire podcast, right? Because yeah. that's a, sounds like an easy question. Actually, there's a lot there. I mean, I think that we've seen the gamut from the predilection to secrecy, to covering things up, to bad news not flowing up through their system, to once the senior leadership decides they want to act, I think it and quite quite remarkable and efficient brutally efficient, I think you could say, response where they can really mobilize all of society to tackle what they see as, frankly, an existential threat on many levels. And, and that certainly, I think, is is what the, the COVID-19 has been to China and now, obviously, to the world. So were any parts of this response surprising to you on the upside or downside, or did everything really sort of line up with the general predilections of Xi-era China? So I think what was surprising was how they screwed up the initial response to the virus because, you know, they they had said, and I think the head, was the head of the CDC, I think it was Golfu who had said last year, basically, was it last year or maybe it was the 18th Party Congress that, you know, SARS couldn't happen again because we built systems to, to you know, catch it, catch something like that early and how whatever systems they believe they built had completely failed and how they didn't learn any of the lessons of SARS in terms of how you, you know, you don't cover up, you don't lie about it. And, and so that I think was, you know, on the one hand, I guess we, we shouldn't be surprised given the nature of the system. On the other hand, the one thing about the communist party is it has shown an ability to learn and adapt. And in this case, that, that basically they seem to have unlearned or ignored those lessons from SARS at tremendous cost to to China and to the rest of the world. So, you know, this is it's fascinating because it's like, okay, on the we have these two contrasting themes about like the essence of, of the CCP, right? Where on the one hand, it has been able to evolve dramatically over the past uh, 50 years. But at the same time, you know, what it ended up running into are the sort of most central contradictions, like the local central relations, sharing of information. And even though there have been a number of really obvious, very big deal pandemics, which the US has the excuse of not having had to live through over the past 20 years, it still wasn't able to get the, the information flow in place. And you still end up seeing Lee Williang getting censored for getting trying censored. to spread the word. And, 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 you know, I mean, the reality is, is I guess in some ways it really shouldn't have been a surprise too, because of what happened with the African swine fever, right? Which, which totally. is, 
turned out to be a, a in many ways a man-made disaster in China that was became that man-made disaster because of many policy mistakes and issues within the system in terms of people, you know, if there are all sorts of misincentives to hide information and to continue raising diseased uh, hogs or sell them for sell them to slaughterhouses. So I think the point really is is that on the one hand, you know, the party the party says things have evolved, but on the other hand actually that we shouldn't we shouldn't be really that surprised. It's it's just unfortunate. And I think though I think inside the system there was some surprise because again, you had officials who seemed to really believe that they'd figured out how to avoid the next SARS. In terms of the other bits, sort of how things played out. I mean, I think when it when it really started getting ugly in in mid late January, and you know, basically they had a lockdown Wuhan. They had that unprecedented New Year's Chinese New Year Lunar New Year's Day. They had the uh, standing committee meeting, which then they actually broadcast video from inside the meeting, which I think I don't and I can't find anyone who ever remember seeing actual video of, of on CCTV from inside a Politburo standing committee meeting, and so that was the. That was where the that was she he, he put out a directive a few days before that and but on January 25th with that standing committee meeting that was the you know okay this is obviously a crisis we are you know this is people's war we, we are we are turning the entire system to fight this and you know there was a lot of of commentary Chernobyl moment you know this is going to weaken she blah 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 you know she had disappeared for a few days and so there was various speculation about. You know, is she in trouble? Was there, you know, pressure? Was there a coup? You know, all, all sorts of wacky stuff that happens whenever there appear to be problems in China and she isn't, that you don't see them. And I, I will say in my newsletter, I, I was pretty clear that I thought those were, were BS. But, you know, it, what it turned out, though, is I think now, fast forward, it looks like that at least now she in many ways looks like he he's, was able to leverage this into, you know, sort of more of the he's the commander of the people's war against the virus and so certainly china you know we, we got the news today that wuhan was going to re- re- relax a lot of the lockdown measures over the next couple of weeks mm-hmm. you're starting to see schools reopen across the country you know you're you're starting to see that you know really the sense that things are sort of you know coming back to some something approximating or approaching normalcy meanwhile the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket and so yeah. i, I mean, think it's, that it's- there, and that and that and that going to hell in a handbasket has two sides of it. On the one hand, from the China, from the Communist Party's perspective, hey, look, we figured it out. We took it seriously. We got through this, right? Look at Italy. Look at Spain. Look at New York. Look at the U.S. You know, on and on and on. The other hand, though, is the problem for the Communist Party and the Chinese economy, which is that they need the global economy to be functioning to actually have an economic recovery of any meaningful nature. And so they they can't spend too much time hoping that the rest of the world goes to hell in a handbasket and the and is a nice sort of juxtaposition or contrast to how China has done so well dealing with the virus because they need those markets they need that they need they need that investment and so right now I think you know a month ago or three weeks ago it looked like China was coming out of it really well. Now, though, I think there's another layer of risk around the economic side because of what's going on in the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, staying with the uh, leadership dynamics before we turn to, to the economics, it's just been fascinating watching the Trump psychology sort of flipping from the 
I'm leading a people's war to know like the economic turndown is too scary. So now we're going to just start the country again in, in two weeks. Just for the record, we're recording this on uh, March 24th. I don't know if you have a U.S. policy response versus China policy response and like what that tells us about the two systems or whatnot, Riff. I think it, go- it goes back to how I think China really mishandled the, the initial response and, and allowed it to become a much bigger problem than it should have been. But once they decided that it was a serious issue, they really did take it quite seriously and responded much better than the U.S. has so far when it comes to things like the testing, when it comes to things like figuring out how to. And, and we, you know, we may get there in places like New York faster than, you know, you know, fairly quickly where they realized in Wuhan, for example, that they needed to take everybody who was, was sick or po- tested positive, even if they didn't have, they were, even if they weren't really sick, they needed to put them in this at these central quarantine facilities. Um, because having, you know, peeping, keeping people at home in their small apartments, one person gets sick, the whole family gets sick, it, it turned out to actually lead to a lot of deaths. And so I think that, but but I do also think, you know, the PRC system has, does seem to have a more of a belief in, in science than uh, certain parts of the U.S. system or certain um, parts of the U.S. political system, I should say, not necessarily the government. They also have a, a much larger arsenal of brutal brutal and efficient methods they can bring to bear to get people to comply when they decide they're going to shut down the city or they're going to decide that people can't leave their homes. And so, yeah. you know, that there were, there uh, were no videos I saw of the equivalent of Miami spring breakers just right. trying to live their best and, lives and, on Chinese and, social media. And, you know, I certainly, I certainly don't want to get into like, you know, oh, the, you know, the sort of China did it better, or, you know, that, that's that, you know, we'll see because we're still, we're still getting started here. But I think that the PRC system, the CCP system, it just it just has a toolkit that uh, most countries and certainly the, the you know Western democracies don't don't have or or really aren't willing to use unless it's an absolute you know even a much larger disaster. I think sure. you know the 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 issue on the on the leadership dynamics too is is really where we come out in terms of. Like on Xi, the the question you know, and you see, I think inside China is how how does the the party and how does she make sort of push the blame on to the, the the provincial Hubei officials and the local Wuhan officials in ways that don't blow back against Xi personally, but at the same time, if if they push too hard that it was the local guys really screwed up and therefore it became much worse then that uh, conflicts with the narrative that they're pushing globally about how China did everything they could and bought the world time and the world should basically thank China, mm. right? Because they're trying to have, it, in some ways, the domestic propaganda, international propaganda, they're trying to have it both ways. Yeah. Which I feel like you can sort of get away with. It depends. I think I think there's a chance they can get away with it, but I think it's it's harder now because you know, it, the, there are enough people who are able to sort of understand and see what's being the story that's being spun domestically and compare and contrast that with the story that's being spun globally. Okay. And so it's, 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 it's harder, I think, than it used to be. So, so let's, let's, let's talk a little more about Chinese overseas PR. I mean, we've just had, I mean, not in, 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 in my short Chinese watching career, have I seen uh, CCP leaders start spreading uh, conspiracy theories about America to the um, extent that we've seen with Zhao Lijian. So what, um, what's the motivation for having 
uh, major foreign ministry uh, spokesmen start talking about how America seeded the virus in China? And how do you think the dynamics have sort of played out since he started speaking the way he did over the past two weeks? So I think he's certainly got a, a large audience inside China for what, what he's doing. The kind of w- the wolf warrior, the, the, that famous movie, sort of the, the wolf warrior diplomat approach where he's very aggressively defending China and pushing it back against the evil foreigners. And I think that when you look at sort of the, what, he's, what he's spinning up, you know, it's not just him. You know, he's been the most aggressive on Twitter and sort of in sort of overseas propaganda battle space. But in terms of inside China... You know, there's a there's an article last night from I think it's China Radio International or from the from the China Media Group, which is, you know, has CCTV, China Radio International, which basically it's like three questions for the U.S. And and then the question number two is all about getting to whether or not this was this virus was actually created in the U.S. Army lab. My Liaoning Chinese housewife Chinese tutor is convinced that America created it. I mean, right. this is not just folks who are on Twitter. No, and so and so this is another so there, so again I think there's on the this goes back to sort of the the domestic and the international dimensions of of a sort of a propaganda message which is so domestically this this is also you know it's the sort of okay we the local guys screwed up and they made it worse it wasn't the center oh and it was the Americans who made it and so it was the Americans and then you know the Americans are the most to blame and then it's the local government and then we in the center Xi Jinping you know we did whatever we could to fix it right and so there's that messaging that I think again helps to helps to shift the the potential blame or reclamations again away from Xi party center to to the Americans and then globally you know I think China is extremely worried that they get blamed for this right because it's it's wreaking havoc across the world both you know physically and economically and so for them to sort of see this this doubts and disinformation that maybe the US did it it it's a way for them to one undercut the U.S. position in certain countries, but two, create enough doubt and enough sort of noise that that maybe they avoid what I think will be inevitable calls for accountability. And you know, you saw, for example, can you imagine um, lawsuits? Yeah. Well, I mean, you saw, for example, the a, a leader of Iran today, or today, yeah, last night or today, you know, basically said he's been trading farms with Secretary Pompeo, and he said, you know, if, he said it's a, it's a, you know, suggested that it was a, it was a U.S. the virus was created by the U.S. Right. So it says. Khomeini said the United States could not be trusted to help because it, quote, may have created the coronavirus now sweeping the world. I mean, he's just spouting CCP propaganda. Yeah. What a surprise. Right. But so so that, you know, but but that's part of I mean, you got to remember that I mean, it's just the, the Chinese Communist Party sees itself in a global information struggle with the U.S. especially. And, you know, this is I think this is the most aggressive it's become because the stakes are so high and everyone is under so much pressure. Mm-hmm. How do you think the sort of soft power commercial diplomacy impact of these, you know, Wuhan battle scarred doctors being sent all around the world and and Jack Ma filling up cargo planes with masks will play out? So I think that's really positive, and I think that should be applauded. And I think that there are cases it sounds like where what's been what's been said is aid is actually being you know charged for, which is which is unfortunate. But I think that the world needs masks. China produces most of the world's masks. China. If it, it is it is through the worst, or at least through the worst of the first wave, and so it can do a lot to help the world. And people should welcome Chinese, you know, giving giving masks, giving other personal protective equipment, sharing experiences. The problem, and what's unfortunate, and I think back to this sort of this virus rumor, really is 
what's what's unfortunate is this could have been a moment where you know the U.S. and China could have actually worked together and and could could be more, I think, ha- have a more positive approach to how to deal with this crisis globally. And yet, the way that China that China has been pushing this U.S. created the virus rumor has certainly. I think turned a lot of people in DC, made a lot of people in DC extremely angry. Even people who weren't, you know, convinced that necessarily China was an adversary. I think that it's really pushed things because, because again, people here are under so much pressure. It's made it very, very difficult for anyone to have any positive view of of how the U.S. and China can work together. So, you know, and, and the question too, yeah, I think, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm not entirely sold on that bill. Just I think that the being able to pass the buck to China is such an easy rhetorical move that, uh, you know, maybe there could have been better cooperation at the staff level or something than there is now. But uh, it, it seems hard for me uh, to see this president not going the sort of China virus route. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a fair point. I mean, and, and it is it is, I think, at this point. I mean, we're beyond the any hopes of really cooperating. And so now it, now, it, again, every leader has their you know domestic imperatives and certainly for president trump blaming china for the virus is is a i think i think their his his political team sees that as a uh, useful useful tool or useful pathway to the to the november election because again china it's china's fault china 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 did it you know this economic disaster it's not our fault you know people dying it's not our fault you know blah 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 and so i just blame china and and it may work, right? But I guess the broader point is when I think I think you are going to see the Chinese government and and you know maybe directly or using you know through say Jack Ma the Jack Ma Foundation, I think you're going to start seeing more donations to states and cities. I don't think you're going to see them donating to the U.S. government. But but the other point I was going to make about about China and I think the the sort of the Jolly Jen the the U.S. Army created the virus campaign has hurt China because this could have actually this could be a moment where China wins, it gets a lot of soft power points, not just with sort of its traditional sort of smaller power friendly countries, but even in, in Europe in, with, with other, with bigger powers. And I think though that the way they've gone about prosecuting this disinformation campaign has actually pissed off a lot of people in other capitals as well. Part of the reason, yeah, obviously, that Charlie Jen, you know, picked up and, and pushed on this sort of U.S. Army, maybe the U.S. Army created, was the claims coming out of D.C. from like Senator Cotton and I think some other folks who were saying that, you know, or, or hinted or kind of raised questions that perhaps this was this was not a natural virus and perhaps it was it was created in the or escaped from the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And, you know. The, the the problem is we're in a cycle where the fact that China is now and people like Jolly Jen and other official media are pushing so hard on this idea that maybe the U.S. created it, it's creating a dynamic where even people who were originally kind of skeptical about is this virus not natural, I think you're going to start hearing more people say, well, what are the Chinese actually also pushing back so hard because they're trying to hide something? And so it's creating, and I and I have heard that yeah. from not not Americans. And so so I think it's blowing up, it's backfiring on China. In many areas, in many countries, I think not just in the U.S. And it's again, it's just unfortunate because the world doesn't need this right now. The world needs to figure out how to fight this virus. You know, say you start the clock at February fifth or something. Like the what what the PRC was able to do to fight the virus is probably the most impressive accomplishment they have to brag about over the past you know twenty years, aside from just like high growth. So for them to sort of throw this away to win brownie points in a sort of like tit for tat stupid Twitter war with America, 
is uh, is a real missed opportunity. I totally agree. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, it, 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 but again, you know, we see it as a missed opportunity. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe she and the, or you know they 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 see this as you know. Look, America's weak. America's vulnerable. This is the time to kick America when it's down and gain some ground. Yeah. Do you think Twitter, Facebook, YouTube have should have played a bigger role in counteracting this this propaganda push? You know, they talk about fighting uh, coronavirus disinformation, but I guess that the was a daily a Daily Beast reporter got a hold of a. Twitter spokesman yesterday, Twitter just pointed to their terms of service and said, because Jolly Jen's a public official, then he can say what he wants. I, yeah. I mean, you know, the Twitter is Twitter and Facebook. They're, you know, not just around China stuff, but around a lot of things. They've just, they're, they're, they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're major platforms in a global information war and they're like run by children. So I, I'm writing a piece now about, you know who Cardi B is, Bill? Yeah. Your kids are the right age. Okay. So, so she put out this video, I guess a week ago now talking about how like China's really got its shit together and like America don't want no smoke with China because you know, they're fast and they're quick and they're powerful. And basically it, it was clear in the video that she'd watched this CGTN uh, documentary about how like China was really handling the Wuhan virus well. So, you know, hats off to CGTN for getting Cardi B on their side in this, in this, you know, global information struggle. It's a real, I think, testament to the fact that that the quality of this international propaganda has really stepped up its game over the past few years. In, in certain in certain areas, and then you have people like Jolly Jen, who I think really it hasn't. I mean, there have been people who've tried to push Twitter to at least label, like label, you know, an account from say Jolly Jen or another, you know, PRC diplomat or uh, Hu Jin from the Global Times, basically say, you know, this account is for an employee of a government that blocks Twitter in their country or something like that. Even something simple, and they yeah. won't do that. They won't even. It's it's very strange. I mean, they're they're really have they're advocating and, a lot of responsibility. And 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 the most ridiculous thing is like you know Apple. You can sort of understand from a business rationale, right? You know, they would lose. You know, they they would take a huge hit if the PRC started or more of their to business their supply and, chain. And, and a lot more of their supply chain. Yeah. Yeah, but okay, like Twitter would lose some advertising dollars for some manufa- Chinese manufacturers right, trying to sell stuff in the U.S. You know, it's 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 a cheap stand to take. No, that. no, it's just it's a it's a it's a just a fundamental management issue, and and they yeah. just they're you know, but that's they've had a lot of management issues, not just related to China. I mean, it's it's kind of, I mean, it, it's it's what did Mark Zuckerberg? I mean, I think he, at one point he called it like a, a clown car that that drove into a gold mine. I mean, it, 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 anyway, this isn't a Twitter podcast, right? But there's Twitter, Twitter has succeeded in spite of its management. Let's put it that way. Sure. Mainland Taiwan relations. Uh, what has this crisis exemplified or taught you about the salient dynamics? So that is very interesting because Taiwan, you know, back to sort of China did a great job, you know, and it's the Chinese authority, the system did it. Taiwan's done a really good job. And Taiwan actually, Taiwan also, I think one of the things we're learning as more information comes out is, you know, Taiwan very quickly understood the risks of what was going on in Wuhan and the risks of uh, the system, the CCP system hiding information. And so they moved very quickly to start screening and, and then start blocking. And so they ended up and they, you know, they are a functioning democracy they didn't need to resort to these draconian, brutal measures. 
and yet they've had a you know a very small number of cases. They're obviously dealing now with a potential second wave from sort of you know people returning to to, to Taiwan. But I think and now you're learning too. I mean, the, you know, one of the really real tragedies out of this, I think, we're realizing is just how the WHO, because it wouldn't deal with Taiwan because of the because of the the the, the Beijing's policies. You know, the Taiwan, it looks, it's increasingly sound like the WHO missed opportunities to get more information. I mean, they have, the Financial Times yesterday had that piece or on Sunday had that piece about how um, the Taiwan, Taiwan in early January tried to tell the WHO that, that this was um, human to human, there was human to human transmission before the yeah. Chinese would admit it and before the WHO would say it, well, there was. And and if that information, and, and obviously the Taiwanese were correct, and if that information had been out there earlier Again, this is one of those missteps inside China. If that information had been out there earlier and people had, had behaved differently or Wuhan, you know, they hadn't had many million people leave on the right before the Chinese New Year, you know, again, it probably would have been a much smaller outbreak. We won't know. But, but clearly that dynamic was very detrimental to or very detrimental to the global fight against the virus. Bill, does this dynamic get better with Xi still in power? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you asked about sort of what are we, what does this tell us about the CCP, Taiwan understands the CCP better than any of us. And yeah. when they look at the last few years, especially under Xi, they look at what's been happening in Hong Kong, you know, it, 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 I think best, best, best case is status quo, but it's very hard to find anybody who's in favor of any sort of alleged one country, two systems or, you know, re- reunification. And so if anything, the last few years, I mean, for sure, the last few years has pushed Taiwan further away from Beijing's goal, not closer. And and you just, I don't know how that dynamic changes while she is, she and running the running China the way he's running it. It's kind of like, as people talk about it, I got, I got four different, four different subscribers over the weekend paying me to ask if I thought the rumors were true that she was going to, that China was going to invade Taiwan because now is the moment, right? No, I mean, I think people are very concerned, right? That, you know, this is a, the rest of the world is distracted. You know, the Chinese economy is not doing well. It's not going to do very well the rest of the year. And so, you know, you need a distraction. A, do you need a distraction? B, there's no time like the present because who's going to intervene, right? I mean, I don't think that's going to happen, but I think that there's certainly going around parts of Taiwan that that's, that's, people are starting to worry about that. Yeah. Well, that's horrifying. No, it's, it's completely, completely horrifying. And I hope it's crazy wrong. Um, let's talk about journalists in China. So what struck out to you about the whole series of events that led to the PRC's expulsion of some of the most beloved uh, members of the uh, press corps in, in China? I mean, I, I, was, China. I was talking to a, someone from the New York Times today, and I mean, it's like they just just devastated the, the their operations there. It's just, it's so personally devastating, personally tragic for some of these people, but also just for cover. I mean, it's, it's just, it's so, it's unfortunate, you know, on the one hand, the, the way that the sort of the Chinese talk about reciprocity, but I mean, we got to understand it's fundamentally not reciprocal and hasn't been for years because, you know, CCTN, CCTV are, not only you know doing news gathering here, they're broadcasting to U.S. audiences. You got China Daily, which is publishing in the U.S. and ironically, you know, paying some of the papers whose correspondents were just kicked out to run their weekly insert. 
Yeah. Is, is this going to stop of, finally? Like, I mean, I, I just like, I don't, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how much these papers get paid, but you would think that after this, maybe they'd say, you know what? We don't want that. But again, and then again, the ad market sucks right now. So they'll probably take whatever the money they can get. But then also, you know, and, and so like people's daily overseas edition is publishing here in, in Chinese. And so, you know, fundamentally, last I checked, there aren't any U.S. media organizations publishing or broadcasting inside China to a Chinese audience. So this argument of sort of, you know, the, the U.S. is being unfair and it's totally, you know, totally unbalanced, as I think you sort of heard from from the spokes, the, the foreign ministry spokesman uh, more than once, you know, that's that's just sophistry, to be honest. Right. And so so that said, in terms of reciprocity, you know, I really don't think the U.S., you know, the U.S. could kick out another 50 Chinese journalists. And I don't think Who China gives a actually shit? cares. Yeah. Right. And there are there. There's certainly folks just like when you see like a like a Jolly Jen. The thing about Jolly Jen and his wolf warrior diplomacy is he looks like it's the mainstream. He's not the he's not the aberration. And I think, again, there's certainly folks in China and maybe including Xi who'd be more than happy to basically shut down most of these bureaus and kick all the U.S. journalists out. And so I think that, you know, what's next? I mean, and it's tragic. And the Chinese were very smart in a very, very bad way in that they not only went after these really good reporters, they also went after the really good Chinese reporters, the, the new, the quote unquote news assistants, the one who can't technically be reporters under Chinese law, but actually do a lot of reporting and, yeah. and really help help shape and 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 break a lot of news for these all the news organizations in China and taking out some of the forcing some of those people to resign is and removing some of the you know the the foreign correspondents it, it effectively blinds some of these organizations in the near term and you know maybe they can rebuild it's going to take time to bring in new correspondents we know how it takes a while for the you know pieces to be approved and so we're we're going to see i think a a, a significant degradation in U.S. you know coverage of China from from those affected media outlets for a while, and that's you know what again maybe that's clearly there are some people in Beijing who think that's a good idea. I think it's unfortunate. I think though on the U.S. side, I I, I don't think we're going to engage in a sort of a tit for tat. Where we're going to kick out another fifty journalists, but I do think that the U.S. government is going to be looking at other ways, maybe maybe asymmetric to kicking out reporters to respond to um, the latest round. So. What's your favorite sort of like creative thing that, you know, Treasury could do, tre- Treasury of the State Department could do that that is like asymmetric and out of the box? Well, favorite is kind of the wrong term because I, I would just prefer that we're not in this tit for tat. You know, I think I think that there's no. Well, OK, OK, OK. Most yeah. clever. So most clever. I mean, so so I think that, you know, my understanding of what the party, the Communist Party cares about. Again, it's not the reporters. It's about. You know, it goes back to the early discussions about sort of this information, this global information struggle and how, you know, the, the Chinese government has is very focused on um, what they, they talk about, sort of the international discourse power, uh, right? And sort of, re, you know, they, they see it unbalanced globally that the West has for ta- far too long dominated uh, global discourse. And China, China's a big country, China, we deserve more of that discourse power. And so... Part of a big part of that strategy is, you know, the CCTN, uh, China Daily, People's Daily Overseas. For you know, People's Daily Overseas is a little bit less. That's more targeted to diaspora because it's in Chinese. But yeah. so, so measures that would target their ability to disseminate that information, say inside the U.S., would be much more meaningful and much, much 
um, much more disliked inside China than kicking out more reporters. The yeah. thing is, is the, and this goes back to my comments about Twitter and Facebook, more about Twitter, but also Facebook, YouTube, is the key platforms in that globally are Twitter, Facebook, and Google. And so long as, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know, I don't think the U.S. government can or has the ability to force Twitter, Facebook, YouTube to deplatform them. But, you know, that is something where if, if, if the government were to pressure around the, those, the CCP medias using these American platforms that are, are global, but they are American companies to sort of, sort of wage their struggle to increase their share of global discourse power, that would have, I think, a much more meaningful impact in Beijing than tossing a bunch of reporters. Sure. How scared should the average freelance American journalist in China be right now? You know, I think every American in China should be a little bit nervous just, just because of the, the way things are headed politically. You know, I think we, we thought, you know, we've had a, it's been a rough couple of years because of the trade war and, you know, stuff with Huawei, ZTE and, you know, other things, you know, it looked like with the phase one deal. I mean, you think about it, the phase one deal was what, two, two months and change ago. And it yeah, felt geez. like, you know, the idea was, okay, you know, it's not a great deal, but it puts a floor into the relationship. We we're arresting, at least in the short term, we're arresting the downward trajectory relationship. And yes, we have all these other issues around security technology, um, but this gives adds back some ballast to the relationship and maybe maybe it will slow the decoupling momentum. Maybe it will sort of slow the sort of the mutual invective and vitriol. And then, you know, here we are, right? And and so I think the trade, and again, the trade deal may continue and, you know, Trump and Xi, I think are going to have a, you know, they may be doing something that sort of kind of at least, I think President Trump particularly cares about the trade deal still happening, but there, the, this, the pandemic now has has unleashed a lot more forces on both sides that I think have not only restarted, but accelerated the trajectory towards decoupling on multiple levels. And as part of that decoupling, you know, if that if that's really where we're headed, that makes it increasingly, I think, difficult to be an American in China over the longer medium to longer term. I really yeah, hope I'm, I'm wrong. I'm just really jealous of everyone who got to live through better times because it's really scary and it's not fun. Are you going back? I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, that's you know. a great answer. I, I had a great 10 years. I, you know, the last, the last time I was there was 05 to 2015. And it was crazy. It was, it was a fascinating time. And, you know, you, you know, one of the reasons I left in 2015 was I didn't like the trajectory, both in terms of the U.S.-China relationship, but also in terms of what was going on inside, you know, the domestic political situation, specifically Xi Jinping. You know, I think we were a little early, but I still don't see anything, if, only, if anything, that trajectory is worsened significantly. Yeah. And, you know, there's just a, it's it, it just, but it, but it is unfortunate because, you know, we, we, you know, all of us who go spend time in China or go live there or go study there, we do it because for a reason, we actually want to like the country. We have Chinese friends. We actually want to have a positive U.S.-China relationship. And it's just it's so, so difficult to figure out how to do that right now. All right. So let's do a little bit of happy stuff. Any you know, China related Mandarin content worth binging on reading to sort of distract ourselves from the, you know, terrible situation that the world is currently in? Chinese related content worth binging on. The so, last thing I watched was the like 24 hours in Chang'an, which was uh, basically like a, a guy trying to, you know, had 24 hours to prevent a, a big attack in Chang'an. And it was, it was interesting, but I, it, I don't know. I thought it was I mean, beautiful. I, 
it was beautiful, but it was, it was, it was, yeah, I like, I, I got to like the 20th episode. I really liked the Genshi Palace. That's the last one I like fully binged on. I actually really liked it. Yeah. Did you um, watch it? I did. I did. Again, okay. I sort of like, I sort of dip in and out because my girlfriend, she watches it all in like, in like four days. This is how she, she does these Chinese dramas. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. you know, and, uh, I'll see episode four and episode nine, and then I'll right, like read right, right, some right. summaries in between. And, um, and then the, the other but, one, I don't know if she watched it, but I watched it a bit with my mother-in-law and it was, it was actually pretty good. It's just Da Jianghe. Like, I think it's in English. How is it translated? It's it's Jianghe. About, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's it's an, it's an interesting story of like sort of the reform and opening era, right? And in, in I mean, obviously, it's 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 very you know, a lot of the edges are removed, but it's still it's still it's an interesting story that you know I think it's, you know shows in many ways the progress and the changes, and many of them very positive. Yeah, it's uh, I agree. I actually really enjoyed that one too. It was you know it was it, it, it like I, when they try to make me cry, I just start laughing. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but aside from that you know it was like they spoke really slowly it was clear like it wasn't too complicated and you know it was it was it was like actually dealing with contemporary issues in a way that other modern shows don't you know i've been watching xiao Huanxi, which is this sort of like beijing rich families kids are going through gaokao and like one of the kids just wants to be a race car driver so he's not studying hard and the other plays too many like video games on his phone and it's just like so light and silly and ridiculous which is i guess sort of fun escapism but at least like you can think about it in the context of like okay this is propaganda so like what is this trying to like how is the party trying to frame itself and like what does that tell you about both the history as well as what you know like historical memory and whatnot which which is which is a more fun lens to look at things than really just seeing like this is just straight opiate for the masses and there's nothing there's nothing behind it so, so final question for you, Bill, you know, mm-hmm. as cynicism is grow, you really have become this, this sort of agenda setter within, within DC for sure, as well as other capitals around the world. I'm curious sort of how that, how you deal with that sense of responsibility, if you feel it or not, and you know, what you think yourself as well as other journalists coming, covering China have, you know, sh- should be thinking about as we get into this really scary time. No, I mean it. It it, it is. It, it's it's bigger than I ever expected to be, and it certainly has a readership that you know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't think it's accurate. Say agenda setting. I mean, but I think it's it's a it's a data point or a or an information an information contribution to 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 sort of how people look at China. But it's certainly you know it, it for for it's still small. But I mean, there I do have a lot of interesting readers. But I don't. I don't want to take credit or say I'm like you know, setting a lot of agendas. But I think that, you know, it, it, I do feel more responsibility now. And, you know, that's why last week, I think it was, you know, I sort of, you know, maybe sounded alarmist, but just looking at, for example, you know, I obviously care a lot about the Osiris relationship. It, it It's extremely distressing, you know, right now to do the newsletter every day, just not only because, you know, we're, everyone's stressed because we're all basically locked down and what's going on around us. But then also layering on top of that, looking at U.S. China relations and, you know, Jolly Jan and all this stuff. And, you know, just like, you know, like, you know, hair on fire every day because you just you just sort of say, you know, this is this is we got to figure out how to get this relationship right. But it's it's really hard and it's especially really hard because, you know, look, there's a lot of stuff going on in D.C., but. You know, it's not fair to say the Trump guys are the you know screwed it up. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that the U.S. policy is what it is because of what's coming out under Xi and, and from the Communist Party. And so it's just a very it's a very difficult time in the relationship. 
And so I think it's it's important to try and provide as accurate information as possible. And also, you know, one of the things I struggle with is how to avoid the DC bubble. And it's it's easy to fall into that bubble here. A lot of it is is you know just trying to spend as much time with sort of Chinese sources as possible. And you know, it's harder and harder. I mean, the one thing that she's done. And it's not just for foreigners. I mean, she the Xi era, you've seen a significant constriction of the information environment inside China. And, you know, the the, the previous era, you're living in Beijing, you know, it was in, I was in Beijing for three years of the Xi era and, you know, seven years of the Hu era. And, you know, there were actually people in Beijing you, you, who knew stuff, like real stuff. And you could talk to them and, you know, you could actually people and people had an idea what was going on. Most Chinese people have no idea what's going on in terms of politics, in terms of policies, right? Forget the foreigners. There's just such a different environment and a different climate about how information is controlled and information is wielded under Xi. And then yeah. that, that, you know, it's even harder for foreigners. It's even harder, you know, no longer living in Beijing. And so um, it's back to, I mean, last, pod, last podcast you did with Ryan, you were talking about documents and Ryan, you know, he's masterful at reading documents. It does matter, you know, that that's one of the things that was, Part of my academic training was looking at sort of party documents and not at his level, but, but, you know, there, there are still ways to get some sense of what's going on, but, you know, the, the trick is not to just focus on the sort of the, the, you know, there's just a lot of echo chamber indeed. There's echo chambers everywhere, but trying to, and part of it is, part of it is I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat reclusive these days. And so maybe I, 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 I'm not, I'm not on the circuit in DC and maybe that helps a little bit. Well, you're way out in northeast, right? So I guess that I guess that's no, northwest, the yeah, way out in north. But but also the and I guess now like being a recluse is a good thing, right? <laughs> All right, Bill, we should let you. We should let you get yeah, off. Yeah, I gotta go to my kids' uh, my kids' uh, virtual soccer practice. Same computer, but hey, thank you, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. And again, congratulations. Thanks, Bill. Thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thanks for having me on, and we'll uh, and stay safe. Okay. Cheers. Bye, Bill. Yeah. Bye bye.